Today we hear two stories uh, of two widows in our readings, and the first is a widow from Zarephath, and she's suffering through a famine and is preparing a final meal before she and her son surrender to death. It's a really grim moment that she's sharing there with the prophet. And then the second widow at the temple is giving the last two coins she owns to God. The first widow's plan is interrupted by the prophet Elijah, telling her to feed him first with the promise that her supplies will multiply until the famine is over. The second widow in Mark 12 is immortalized by Jesus as a witness to the abundance found in trusting God with your emptiness. I always think of my grandmother when I read the second widow's story. My grandfather uh, was on his way home from working on heavy machinery for Caterpillar and stopped by my uncle's apartment to pick up a guitar. He left the door open. He was running in right away, but he apparently felt poorly. He lay down on the couch where he suffered a massive heart attack and died just a few days short of his 63rd birthday. My grandmother was a widow before her 60th. My mom said when the officer came to the door that my grandmother was so overcome with shock and grief that she collapsed to the floor and began to cry out to God in the spirit. What we call groans too deep for human words. She'd been there before because just a few years earlier, their 27-year-old daughter, Patsy, had died suddenly of a rare heart condition while on the phone at her desk. She knew grief. And she'd have been alone, except that my mom, my brother, and I lived with her for most of the first seven years of my life. Mom worked, and Grandma never learned to drive, so we often rode the city bus to downtown Stanton, Virginia, where I was born. And she would always let me drop the coins into the slot next to the bus driver. I remember the sound they made. They would plink down into the glass cylinders, you know, separating themselves into the glass cylinders, and then we would slide into those deep turquoise seats on the bus and make our way to the bank and then to Woolworth's Five and Dime or to Kroger's. Around five years before my grandfather's death, they had decided to buy a new home after a lifetime of renting and saving. But now the mortgage was left for my grandmother to pay. She had Social Security, and she began selling Avon, which is cosmetic. Does Avon even still exist? Does it? Okay. So (laughs) there you go. So she, would, she attempted to sell cosmetics here and there, but not driving made it a little tough to do that. She cleaned a couple houses within walking distance of her home, and she had her tiny little green food stamps that I used to like to play with. She certainly wasn't as destitute as this widow in our story, yet she lost much and never had much to live on, ever. But she had Jesus, and I can see her sitting at the end of her kitchen table reading and underlining in her Bible. My grandmother used to sing, and she didn't sing very well. She had a very shrill head voice, but it did not stop her from singing. And I remember uh, that voice. I miss it. And um, she, the one song that she sang stands out. Maybe you know it. It goes like this. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? Anybody know what the song is yet? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. If you want a really good version of that, a modern version, Lauren Hill has one that you can listen to. In Mark 12, Jesus is watching a widow. 
His eye caught her putting a tiny sum into a hole in the wall of the temple, but there was more there than met the eye. Jesus saw what was going on. He had insight, divine insight, and he wanted his disciples to see. He wanted us to see. Peter made sure that we would see by telling this story to Mark and including it in the gospel. We read that Jesus has just warned his disciples, right, about Israel's scribes saying, watch out for them. They strut around like peacocks in their long robes, their fancy clothes. They're looking for attention. They pray these long prayers, these self-important prayers, and they devour widows' houses. And then the story. In other words, Jesus is saying their sham is financed by desperate people they've manipulated, vulnerable people. The death of a husband in Jesus' day meant potential exploitation for someone like a widow, especially if other family was scarce, and in her case, it probably was. It wasn't uncommon for religious professionals to compel desperate women to give their dwindling resources to them in the hope of some kind of favor or some kind of help, right? They were drawn to the potential power that these people had. Maybe they leverage for them. These charlatans represent what? They represent injustice and hypocrisy. They represent broken systems that persist today. They seem impressive to us, to them, and they have a way of holding our attention. But they are the very people for whom Jesus reserved his most biting rebukes. My mom once told me how shocked and saddened she was when she found out how much money my grandmother had given to televangelists in the 80s. Alone, at home, Encouraged by religious broadcasting, encouraged by talented, tearful preachers, she'd given thousands. But when questioned by my mom, my grandmother's response went something like this. The Lord knows I didn't give that money to Jim and Tammy Baker. I gave it to him. So contra these charlatans, Jesus' patience and compassion was so consistently and lavishly expressed toward those whose lives were in shambles. Sadly, even the church has gotten out of step with Jesus in this regard, rebuking or ignoring those undesirables who don't have it together and then congratulating those who meet our standards of importance and of influence. And in verse 41, it says, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Now, this area of the Herodian temple was a gathering place where it wasn't unusual for people to just stop, to people watch, to find a place to sit down and to rest. There was lots of coming and going. It was a thoroughfare. And Jesus has been teaching in the temple courts. Maybe he sat down because he was tired. Maybe he'd been on his feet all day. Or maybe sitting opposite the treasury is loaded. Maybe sitting opposite the treasury is the very posture necessary for this prophetic opposition to the system and the values that are on display. Jesus said what? They will face greater condemnation. For every time society or culture or bad religion or stacked economies or the law courts get it wrong, Jesus promises to make it right. And this is a little bit of an aside, but it's part of what he's saying here. Though we can tend to swim right in our our late modern sentimental soup, we don't like to think about this kind of confrontation and this kind of judgment, but it's a reality and it's a necessity. It might not seem like one for you, but it is for those who are under the boot of the kinds of cultures that we make, the power structures that we build. As Fleming Rutledge put it, a wrathless God has victims. So God will judge. 
In other words, if God doesn't set the world right, if God doesn't deal with the oppressors eventually, those who suffer under them have hoped in vain for justice. Jesus doesn't mince words here. Justice is inevitable, and it belongs to him. So this is the context for this whole scene. Jesus is sitting there. It's the whole scene. It it sets the context for a lesson here, a challenge, actually, if we will see it. If we will see the widow as Jesus saw her, if we will let her instead be our scribe. Around the temple, there were actually 13 brass receptacles coming out, opening out of the walls like trumpets. Imagine them opening out, right? You can put, reach your hand in and put them in, but it goes right inside the wall. Nobody can mess with it. And so they're there, these 13 receptacles, re- ready to receive offerings at any time. And of course, people had no paper money. They didn't have credit cards. They didn't have checks. Their offerings were coins. Many, many different kinds of coins, and these coins made noise when they went in. Many rich people threw in large sums, Mark tells us. If you have a lot of money, you can make some real noise with your giving, literally. And if you sat there and you watched this, you might begin to anticipate with your friends what the noise is going to be like from a particular kind of person. It's kind of people watching on tilt, right? You can can kind of measure people. You can even judge people based on what you hear. Look at that heavy robe he's wearing. Look at the fabric on that woman's sash and how deep the color purple in it. Oh, that's so-and-so. Listen, wait for it. A heavy handful of coins rattle and echo down the tube, and you're like, hmm, I thought it might have been more from them, right? A woman comes along. She's by herself. Her clothes are dirty and worn, and you know it's not going to be much. Why bother? Her offering is basically worthless, right? Wrong. Jesus hears those two little plinks of light copper bouncing along the brass. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Jesus needs his disciples to understand this, what's going on here. He begins the explanation with, Amin Lego, truly I say to you, listen, this is important. Jesus, with this divine insight, knows that this woman is giving everything. He explains why the tiny sum she gave was more than everyone else's. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. What has she given? She's dropped in two lepta, the smallest, tiniest, most insignificant coins, two lepta, and those together made up a codrantes, a tiny fraction of a day's wage, one-sixty-fourth of a day's wage for the average laborer. She gave two coins out of two coins that she had, a factor of one. In short, her apparent nothing, because that's kind of what it was, Jesus is saying, is everything. It's everything. Others have come and given what they'll never miss. She's given what she seemingly cannot afford. But it's not money she gave, not really. It's her future. It's a sign that she is giving herself in that offering, and the Lord sees it. So this story is not really about money, though we'll talk about that maybe a little more. It's not simply about the poor either. That's selling it too short. What's it about? 
rhetorically speaking, just think, what is this story about? What do you think it's about? Jesus is saying that the real value of an offering is not measured by its sum, but by its sign. What does it say? What does it reveal? What does her offering reveal? Surrender. It says trust. Will a friend step in to help her? Maybe. Will she simply fast that day? Will she have another two coins, two lepta when tomorrow comes? Maybe. We don't know. The Lord knows. But she's committed. She is beating back all fear and all scarcity with radical faith in God expressed in generosity toward God. Put another way, she is practicing dependence in her most desperate moment. Everything she has is basically nothing, but she's giving it to the Lord. Jesus is, as he does so often, he's turning things upside down again. And this won't be the last time. We shouldn't be surprised. He's going to do it a chapter later. And it relates to this. In in chapter 13, one of his disciples, they're still in Jerusalem here. They're in the temple complex. And they say to, to Jesus, look, teacher, what massive stones and what wonderful buildings. But Jesus will reply, do you see these great buildings? He's telling them to look again. They're saying, look, Jesus, look what we see. And he's saying, let me tell you what I see. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And you can actually hear some economic echoes in this, can't you? It must be the big offerings that lead to big buildings like this. It's the big givers who make it possible. Surely this is what should impress us. Surely not. Truth is, all anyone has is nothing in the grand scheme of things. The question is, can we see ourselves in the widow? God doesn't need our money, and money is morally neutral. But what we do with it is not. Because it's a sign. It's a sign of what we value most and functionally believe. Regardless of what comes out of our mouths, money talks. It happens to be one that Jesus was quite interested in. Money's an instrument. It's a gauge in many ways for love and desire. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You might know this, but Jesus talks about money 20 times more than any other topic. And again, not because money is in itself moral, it's because it is a sign. Tim Keller, a pastor for nearly 40 years, wrote these words. He said, I've heard almost every kind of confession, but never had anyone say, I spend too much money on myself. Which is important, he says, considering how much Jesus talks about it and the fact that it's the one sin Jesus says to really watch out for. It's not as obvious. He says, Jesus essentially says, if nobody ever thinks they're doing it, then we should at least start with the working hypothesis that it's probably a problem for us too. So I think we can say, in some sense, that the playing field is level, in a sense. It's quite possible that we have so much going on for us that active trust in God can be rare or absent, whether with our money or anything else. There's a real chance that our sense of abundance and self-sufficiency in money, in education, in status, in anything, that can eclipse our sense of gratitude and trust. Two expressions that are fundamental to our faith. Two things that are the gospel that this widow's life are proclaiming. 
today. Maybe there's nothing in our lives that's appropriately empty and needful. It's worth asking. Maybe there's nothing that actually feels vulnerable, at least right now. Nothing that feels actually finite. Nothing that brings us to a place of real surrender to God. And I think Jesus is saying, that's a problem. So it's for us to be honest about what a story like this is doing in us. Let's just stare it in the face. What do you think it might be telling you? What might it be telling you about your own economic life? About your relationship to money in light of your relationship to Jesus? And in really your relationship to trust? Because trust, Jesus is saying, signifies true wealth. If there's a resistance to even thinking about this, guys, don't we really need to interrogate that? And I'm going to be bold here simply because I do think that Jesus' breadth and depth of teaching on this in Mark 12 and elsewhere is as serious as anything else he teaches. I think it's fair to suggest, as we let Jesus speak to us through the widow who gave out of her poverty, I think it's fair to suggest that we need to feel our giving. We need to feel our relationship to money. Put another way, I think if we're to learn anything here from her, that our expression of trust and gratitude and generosity has to actually matter. It can't be an afterthought. Maybe you can give and you not, don't feel a thing. Maybe there's no active sense of gratitude or trust. You can give. It's what you've always done, and, and you're not going to miss it. Or maybe you cannot give and feel nothing. Or maybe things are tight, and even that $10 you give is a gut check. But whatever the case, if we're learning anything from this widow, it should matter about the sign of this instrument in our lives. It should matter that we give and what we give, if it matters this much to Jesus to talk this much about it. Friends, whether we depend on it or we dabble in it, faith is what God wants for us, not from us. Faith is what makes us truly human and rightly ordered in our hearts and our minds and our postures toward God. God doesn't need your money. And, I, you know, I could even say Village Church doesn't need your money. The Lord will provide. He's chosen to provide through those who give faithfully. But God doesn't need our money. Instead, it's an instrument of trust and of our heart's transformation and health. Money is a wonderful servant but a terrible master. Maybe you've heard that. And tethering our hearts to God with our money is our chance to live according to God's beautiful and just economy, whether we're rich or poor, whether we have a lot to give or a little. God is inviting us into His own economy. That's what we see going on at the treasury that day. That's why this woman serves for us a picture of a heart that then, with her hands, does something so effective. The primary effect of our giving is the exercise of trust in God, full stop. The secondary effect of our giving is the reorienting of our perspectives on material resources that cannot ultimately satisfy and they cannot save. And the third effect is that God takes what we give by His own choosing by actually his own gift to us, by giving and restoring us agency. He takes what we give, two tiny coins or $2,000 or $200,000. He uses it to build the kingdom. 
and He allows us to participate in new creation. All of us, rich and poor, are engaged in the stewardship of renewal and in the ministry of reconciliation through our giving. So in closing, I'm going to let the Reverend John Calvin offer two brief insights from the story of the widow. He said, For the poor who appear not to have the power of doing good are encouraged by the Lord not to hesitate to express their affection cheerfully out of their slender means. Their offering, which appears to be worthless, will not be less valuable than if they had presented all the treasures of a king. What an incredible dignifying. On the other hand, he says, those who possess greater abundance from God are reminded that it is of less value in the sight of God that a rich man out of a vast heap should bestow a moderate sum than that a poor man by giving very little should exhaust his store. In short, it doesn't matter who you are. It's a matter of the heart. We are all poor men and women in light of God's abundance. I want to tell you this, we all bring a kind of emptiness to God if we are honest, honest, whatever the sum of our offerings. We bring our need, and when we do, we need to think about this with me, when we bring our need, our hands are actually fuller than we think they are. Our offerings, big or small, are actually fuller than we think they are. Why? Because what we're bringing is trust. We're bringing trust. Empty hands open hands are full of trust. This is the posture. We rehearse this every Sunday when we come with empty hands, trusting hands to receive the body and the blood of the one who, for our sake, who, though he was rich, became poor, that we might become rich. In the Christian faith, trust is life. That's what this message is about. For both today and tomorrow belong to God. And the question is, do you believe it? Lord, help us to believe it. Our stories have told us many things about our own, um, about our own wealth, about the role money plays and should play in our lives, about how much we can trust you or think we can. Lord, I pray that you open our hearts and open our hands today to trust you more. Help us to do that. Shape our lives so that our great dependence on you will, be, will prove, like Paul said, it will prove to, to bring about in us and in others great thanksgiving, which you deserve. All things are held together in you, and all things come from you today, Lord. We pray that you would help us to know it and believe it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.